0: Bitcoin stands alone in the world as the only currency that's non-political, and it, I, I, that's why I think it has the only, it's the only one that has a shot to be this like neutral reserve asset that that would be globally restraining equally among all players.
1: Hello there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure, sounds absolutely perfect for me and I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking, and if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash peter. Next up, it is Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S, and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L E D G E R.com. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months and then 1.5% back forever after and also for every dollar you spend over 50,000 annually you can get 2% back in bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack sats with BlockFi, then please head over to blockfi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is blockfi.com, which is b l o c k f i.com. Also, today we have Casa. Whether you've just bought your first sats or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account and enjoy a 30 day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best in class customer support and free online resources to support you. Now, 12Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. Take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custody in your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Hi there. The show you're about to listen to is a show I recorded with Alex Gladstein on February the 7th in San Francisco. It is called The Economics of War, and it's a show we wanted to make for a long time. We've been discussing it for a while. Alex has been working on an article. But obviously, since we recorded this, war has broken out. Um, On February the 24th, Russia invaded Ukraine. So I spoke to Alex over the weekend, and we discussed it, and we said we should probably record an intro, or I would record an intro, and just give some context to this. Um, for just for a few reasons, really. I won't, won't really go into them now, but primarily I didn't want people to think, oh, we've just reacted to the war and made this show. This, uh, like I say, the show was made a few weeks ago, but also I just felt like some context was required. So in the show, Alex describes how the way war is financed in America and the way it's been trending in an undemocratic direction. He explains how decisions about how to pay for war have been over time taken out of the people's hands. No longer does the US fund war in a dialogue with its people, uh, through taxation or war bonds, but now pays for conflict entirely through borrowing with very little oversight from Congress. Now, Alex argues that one of the most important and attractive features of democracy is that is that it's less likely to go to war than a dictatorship. And he makes the case that fiat currency and central banking is damaging the American democratic model, making it less connected to the people and less able to stop wars or shorten wars. I mean, we saw this back in the Iraq War. Uh, In the UK, we had the biggest protests in history. We had members of parliament step down, yet still we were unable to stop Tony Blair taking the UK into uh, the Iraq war with America. Now, when Putin invaded Ukraine, he didn't need permission from the people. He has no checks and balances. He just does what he wants because he's a dictator. But Americans are supposed to be different. They're supposed to have a say. But over the past few decades, they've not had such a say. So This is a show that focuses on the dangers of modern war finance and suggests a possible future where citizens can actually constrain their rulers, making events like these invasions of Ukraine and Iraq much more difficult. So, yeah, I felt this context was needed. I felt I just wanted to give an intro for this one. Um, If you do have any questions about this show specifically, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at did.com. And I'm sure you can reach out to Alex. I'm sure Alex would be glad to hear from you or answer any questions from you. Anyway, listen, on to the show. Um, I hope you appreciate why we had to give some context to this. And yeah, as I said, if you've got any questions, you can reach out to me.
0: morning alex morning peter
2: it's good to be back in person with you
0: beautiful setup you have here in the bay area
2: yeah big thanks to danny and jeremy for working late last night getting this all set up we got in late we went and visited uh jack's mom and dad jack Miller's mom and dad and then uh, drove up what time what time did we get here half ten ish half ten
0: you wouldn't know it. it looks it looks uh spotless and slick here
2: and uh, yeah, we've, uh, you give me a lot of content. You give me a lot of opportunities to interview you with all your great work, these massive essays and research topics you've been doing. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to you about them. I really appreciate it, but I'm glad I can sit and talk to you.
0: Yeah, well, I'm happy to kind of give you a sneak peek today of what, what I'm digging into now, what I've been digging into for the last few months and what I'll publish eventually as an essay.
2: And hopefully all collected together at a book sometime.
0: Yeah, well, I have my first book coming out uh, in time, I believe, for uh, Bitcoin 2022. Really? Called Check Your Financial Privilege, which is essentially um, tying together a lot of the writing and research I did over the last year and a half.
2: I I still have no idea where you find time. I'm I'm entirely convinced you don't actually sleep. Uh, Late at night. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, this is an important topic. A lot of Bitcoiners uh, talk about money and the incentives with money and war and how Mm -hmm. maybe under a Bitcoin standard we don't have war or maybe less war. So this is a topic that's highly relevant to Bitcoiners and I'm glad you're diving into it. There's probably no one better to dive into the subject than you. Um, Is this a project that is personally important because of the work you do with the HRF?
0: Yeah, I think that the driving interest for me to look into how wars are paid for is in the social contract between the individual and the state. And there is this idea that drives uh, our appreciation for, or one of our greatest appreciations for democracy is something called democratic peace theory. Um, and I've been reading a book called Taxing Wars, which is awesome by this um, scholar named Sarah Krebs that I would recommend people read. Um, I'm, just, I'm just gonna read um, kind of her thesis. It's just two sentences. And I think that'll help set the table here. A long-established tradition of democratic theory suggests that a key difference between democracies and non-democracies is that a democratic populace bears the direct costs of war in blood and treasure. The more directly they bear those costs, the more incentives they have to pressure leaders to keep wars short and low cost— my normative concern with this project was the inverse of this logic. If individuals no longer saw the costs of a war, would they be less politically engaged with the cost, duration and outcome? The study suggests the answer is yes. So what she's essentially concerned about is the way that, uh, especially in democracies, uh, whether it be the U.S., the U.K., India, Israel, etc., over the decades, uh, the way to pay for wars has moved from a very involved uh, taxation and, and war bond based system where the citizens knew what was going on essentially to uh, what we now call the age of credit card wars, where wars are literally paid for entirely by borrowing, uh, invisible to the citizenry. And she basically the thesis of her book is that this breaks democratic peace theory, because if democracies uh, no longer have that accountability mechanism, that's like tying you and I to our to what our governments are doing, then we don't care anymore. And then maybe the democracy isn't any less likely than a kingdom or a dictatorship to go fight. So that's what's driving my, driven my interest is, can democracies essentially survive fiat currency when it, when it comes to uh, warfare, like the warfare state?
2: I, um, I was sat down with Ragnar, Ragnarli the other day, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know Ragnar, but uh, he brought up to me that the Bank of England was created to finance a war
0: well the, the you know again we have we have two ways to to finance war that um put some sort of restraint on what governments can do. One, of course, is taxation, because if you and I get taxed too much, we're going to be pretty pissed, right? Yeah. And we're going to vote for somebody else if it's a democracy. Um, or we're going to protest, no matter what the government structure is. The other one is, is a war bond, where um, the government says, hey, we're going to, we're gonna you know, please buy these promises to pay, and we'll pay you back in 10 years or whatever, and we'll use them to, to buy things for the war effort, right? And the irony is in World War I, uh the 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 british government um actually tried to do this um they held a bond sale it's detailed in in Seyfidin's, the fiat standard in the beginning of his book and they tried to raise like 350 um uh i think billion dollars of bonds for world war 1 and the public basically didn't have the appetite for it so what ended up happening is secretly the government bought the bonds themselves so this is kind of presaging um, what happens today, which is which is what we would call government intervention in the bond markets, or central banks buying their own government's debt. Um, and that's that's one of the main things we're gonna dive into. Uh, but essentially we're a long way from um, the wars of World War One, World War II, just to give you some ideas, some context, almost 50% of World War II was financed by taxes. There's massive increases of tax in taxes. Uh, in America uh, in the run-up to and during World War II. Um, Previous to World War II, very few Americans even paid taxes. And afterwards, lots of them did. So when when people talk about the greatest generation, these people who sacrificed so much, that's one of the things they're talking about, is that we we started to actually pay more for the society around us um, and expect more, right? Korean War financed fully by taxes. Um, And again, there were taxes, there were war bonds. I have a fun story here. (laughs) The the New York Fed the the Reserve Bank in New York has this story on their website. Um, in April '43 during World War II, uh, the the employees uh, pooled their resources together to buy eighty seven thousand dollars worth of war bonds at the time, which was which was significant at the time. Um, and what the government would do is when you would when you would uh, buy these war bonds, the government would actually come back to you and tell you itemized what what they purchased with the money you gave them. So. The employees of the Fed were, were informed that uh, the money bought a 105-millimeter howitzer and a P-51 Mustang fighter plane. I mean, think about how detached and distant we are today from that. We have no idea what our government is doing with this money. It's, it's, and it's, I think it's destroying democracy.
2: Well, it came out with the, after the Afghanistan war. There's that Netflix documentary series which covers 9-11 through to Afghanistan and Iraq. And I can't remember the. Turning Point, was it? Uh, I think that it might have been called Turning Point. It's, it's a fantastic series, four mm-hmm. or five parts. And they cover the whole part of what happened with the money in Afghanistan, the billions and billions. I'm not even sure if it's trillions of dollars. Trillions. trillions and how much is unaccounted for, where it went, uh, the, the stupid things that money was spent on. Um, so I think, obviously, we're in a very different place. But I, I do want to go... Back, or like, or How far back did you go with this? How far back did your research start?
0: Well, again, um, I think you want to look at the modern state. You know, pre-World War I, states were very different in the way that they were structured and financed. So if we look at the last 120 years, the point is that wars, in, at least in America and to a large extent Europe, um, were financed by the public and in a way where, you know, if the war stretched on too long and they didn't want it, the war would end. They would vote somebody else in power. Um, and the thing is, these earlier wars were more popular, um, especially World War II. Uh, it was a popular war. Even to the, to, if you look at public polling, even like Co- the Korean War, Americans were, were in support of this war. Where things start to change is Vietnam, right? So there was actually one um, tax, one more tax to help pay for Vietnam in 68 that J- Lyndon B. Johnson um, imposed And the public didn't like that very much. And that's one of the things that led to him uh, basically resigning, um, stepping down, paving way for Nixon. And there was just tremendous financial pressure uh, during during the the Vietnam War. And the rest of the world could see that. And it ended up turning into a situation where Vietnam was mostly fought on credit. And today, Afghanistan and Iraq fought entirely on credit, entirely by borrowing. That's why we call them the credit card wars. In fact, Americans have spent $1 trillion so far uh, since since 2001 when we started operations in that theater only on interest for the war money that we borrowed. So just, just on the interest payments alone, we spent a $1 trillion. And if we stopped today all of the war in that region, the whole global war on terror, we'd still owe $6 trillion by 2050. Um, but we're not stopping today. So basically the point is that from a national security perspective, the United States relies on borrowing to pay for its wars. And 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 the key part is it needs the interest rates to be low. If the interest rates are high, the government will basically collapse. So I've been looking into this um, correlation between the low interest rate modern regime started by Alan Greenspan in the 90s, where he basically said, look, um, we're going to we're going to fight price inflation. But we're going to ignore asset inflation and we're going to come and step in and save the economy whenever it collapses. That's like the blueprint of the Fed since Greenspan's age. And that's created the monetary environment that we live in today. Right. And that policy was essentially one that said, let's just lower rates. Let's use the Federal Reserve's power to go buy and sell treasuries in the open market to lower interest rates. So what's happening here mechanically on the back end is that even if other nations... um, are getting skeptical about the United States, uh, about our credibility, about the value of our debt. Um, That's okay because we have much as the example I gave earlier in World War I, the British government secretly bought its own debt to make it look like the debt was popular, right? Um, Similar today, you have like what we call a bond buyer of last resort. So the U.S. government is buying uh, to the tune of trillions of dollars in the last d- decade and a half or whatever, since the global financial crisis, trillions of dollars, more than $5 trillion of, of U.S. government debt. And that makes it much more valuable than it would be otherwise. So if you didn't have the Fed buying U.S. debt, um, the, the way just for the listener, just to pause here for a second to describe like a, like a bond. Like, if Peter, you're, if you're selling, you know, uh, your, your Bedford Squad t-shirts and no one wants to buy them, you have to drop the price, right? This is like normal, right? So with the bond, um, what happens if no one wants to buy your bonds, you have to actually raise the interest rate to, to incentivize people to come and buy your bond. Um, now, if interest rates are rising, that means the US government has to pay a lot more uh, for all this war debt that it's incurred. So just to give you a sense today, the federal funds rate, which is like the lower, the lowest bound interest rate that the that the central bank of the United States sets is 0.08, Okay, if it if it went to three percent, just to give you an idea, which would be like a, still pretty low in historical context, but a lot higher than today, um, then more than one third of the. Uh, Four trillion dollars that the government brings in every year in taxes would have to go towards interest payments. So they have a huge um, (laughs) incentive to keep these interest payments low. And I've been looking into the connection between the war on terror and this regime of low interest rates. And my sort of thesis is is essentially that uh, that the war on terror wouldn't be possible without these like quote unquote zerp or zero interest rate policies. Um, And that's something you never see in traditional discourse about um, money and banking. So, for example, I thought this was crazy. Um, There was a U.S. government final report on the great financial crisis. It was called the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. It doesn't mention the war on terror, Iraq, or bin Laden a single time, as if they didn't even happen. So people are looking at the great financial crisis and they're looking at our overextension of debt. And they're not thinking about the war piece, but the war piece is really big. And you look at people who are promoting this um, idea of MMT or modern monetary theory, saying that we should just sort of spend in an unrestrained manner until we get inflation, right? That's kind of their idea. Thanks, Stephanie Carlton. Yeah. So her, I read her book recently. It's, it's, it's I mean, it, I would recommend you read it just to understand, like, how far-fetched this way of thinking is. But her book is a long book. It's 300 pages. It doesn't mention Iraq or Afghanistan a single time. The word does not appear. So you have someone who's trying to tell the history of American finance and give you a framework for how we're going to spend in the future. And war is not even on her radar. War is the single largest non-discretionary expenditure of the U.S. government. So you have people promoting this idea of easy monetary policy and unrestrained spending. And they're not thinking about the outcome that's going to have on these forever wars where we already have two factors that make the wars more distant from us. Number one, there's no draft anymore. My dad went to Vietnam. He was drafted. He didn't want to go. He had to go. Um, so we don't have a national draft anymore, right? Only a tiny, tiny percentage of Americans actually fight, right? Number two, drone warfare. Drone warfare makes it way easier for us uh, to go blow places up and have wars, you know, because we're not going to have as many body bags when we come home. The third element there is, is this shift away from... Um, you having skin in the game as a citizen of their democracy, you no longer have skin in the game because the wars aren't paid for by taxes anymore. Um, in 2007, when we had the Iraq surge, um, I believe it was uh, three to four different congressmen and women, they, they, they tried to pitch the idea of a, of a, t- of a tax uh, to finance um, the surge. And, and Nancy Pelosi basically said no. Uh, she canned the idea. She said it wasn't a very democratic idea, which is, which is crazy because what she's saying is that it would be unpopular if we taxed you. So let's just keep borrowing to pay for the wars. But again, borrowing for war is very similar to going to drone warfare or to not having a draft. It, it distances the citizens from the war. And this is something I'm very concerned about.
2: And you're concerned about that because and under a democracy, it really should be the will of the people to go to war rather than the will of a few people in Washington.
0: hundred percent. And the MMT people say, well, Congress gets to decide how much we spend. Well, Congress isn't doing a very good job of reigning in the wars. I mean, there's like very little congressional oversight or interest, it appears, in war spending. Um, it, you know, it's like, and I think both people on the left and right could agree here that we fight about um, finance for uh, education or healthcare. Oh, but as soon as it's like the military, it's just unquestioned. Like very few people fight it, you know. And even if they fight it in the media, the the Democrats still vote for it anyway. And I don't know if they even should be. Like, I, I you know, I, I I tend to think that we are very overstretched. And you can make a case for supporting Ukraine, but to me, Iraq and I mean Iraq especially was extremely unethical and. I mean, again, trillions of dollars went into paying for these wars. Yeah. And, and, the, and the, the public was against it, like, you yeah. know, like in, 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 in many ways. I mean, we saw the largest protests since Vietnam, right? In London, agreed. But, you know, look, Congress voted for it. All of them, Hillary, you know, Kerry, everybody. And the reason there wasn't more fighting against the Iraq war in America and the reason why the actual the anti-war movement kind of died out halfway through the war I mean, today, I mean, do people, there is no anti-war. We don't even know what wars we're fighting. It's because of the way it was paid for. Listen, if it was in your every year when you were paying your taxes, there was like a thing saying, "Up oh, 10% to go fight in Iraq, it would, the war would have ended a long time ago. So the point is that in a fiat currency system, what people like Sarah Kreps describe is that there's almost this inevitability, inevitable decline in quality of democracy because of war finance, like because we go from an age where, Rulers kind of are like in this dialogue with the people about what what should we do? Should we go fight there? You're willing to pay for it? Okay, let's go. Um, oh, you're not willing to pay for it? We're not going to go. That is no longer a conversation that that the leaders and the and the citizens are having, um, and that's almost inevitable with a fiat currency system um, because of this way that you can pay for the war by borrowing and by hiding the costs. I mean, who, these costs are real. I mean, it's not like the military contractor is not getting paid money. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll briefly describe – I thought it would be interesting to just describe the mechanics of, of how the government actually pays for like a tank, and then we can think about the big picture of that. So basically the, the U.S. government has uh, a, a basically a finance department called the, the Treasury. Um, the Department of the Treasury has a bank account at the Fed, um, and it's basically you know a pretty simple bank account, and they use it to pay for stuff like war. Um, so the idea is like all of this war that we've been fighting over the last 20 years has been paid for by what's known as deficit spending, which means the government has to go out and raise money from the open market for it. And they do that through bond sales. So they have these auctions and they say, we're going to sell whatever, $300 billion, $400 billion of bonds. And these, what are called known as primary dealer banks line up and they bid, uh, for these treasuries because these treasuries are, are valuable. Right. So, um, the primary dealer banks buy the bond, the government's bank account at the Fed gets credited, and then they use that money to pay the, you know, guys making the tanks or the weapons or whatever. The thing is, um, since the great financial crisis, which is 2008, we're talking like kind of peak Iraq, Afghanistan wartime. Um, there's another buyer in the market for these for these bonds, um, and that's the Fed. So, the Fed has been buying trillions of dollars. So, my, the questions that I'm asking is like, what happens if the Fed is no longer buying the bonds? You know, what kind of interest rates would we be talking about? And would that limit our ability to fight these wars? And, and to me, the answer is obviously yes. So I don't know if this is avoidable, though, in the fiat currency system. Like, I think the government has figured out this is almost like uh, perfect. They can, they, can, they can fight wars. They can cut. I mean, Bush cut taxes. He didn't like it's not even like we, we didn't do a war tax. We cut taxes. 2001, 2003, we can cut taxes. We can have all the defense and people can have all the entitlements. Well, it's not for free. You, you eventually pay a cost. And the externalities of that cost have been borne by the American people. Number one, it's pushing the cost to the future generations. Now, we're talking the 2030s and 2040s. There won't be enough money to pay for all the entitlements and all the and and the interest on these wars, and the, there's trillions of dollars that will need to be spent on um, health care for the veterans who came home. Trillions just on that alone, we won't be able to pay for it, and we're leaving that dilemma for like the future generation, so they'll pay for it. But in addition, we have two other big, very big negative externalities that we've we've already been dealing with. One is asset inflation, and and we have to think about the fact that like when the Fed. And this is a theory I'm working through. It's clearly one of the reasons. It's not the only reason. There's many reasons the government wants low interest rates. But one of them is clearly so they, they can go fight these wars. I mean, that's, again, the biggest non-discretionary expenditure they have, right? So when they when they go into the market and they buy these bonds and they, and they keep the, the demand for the bonds high and they keep the yield low to, to enforce negative interest rates – that interest rate sets the interest rate for everything else in the economy, a mortgage, a credit card borrowing. So it really stimulates a lot of borrowing and, and, and growth. And this is what they tell us, whether it's the Bank of England or the Fed. This is what they tell us QE is for, stimulating growth when, when we're, you know, in a recessionary environment. Right. But what we've seen is that it essentially um, creates massive asset inflation, whether it's the stock market, Bitcoin, gold. I mean, you've seen you've, you, you and I have seen over the last 20 years. Things like this get super expensive in our own countries. And even if there was no price inflation. Now, this is very redistributionary. This isn't like a, an equally uh, distributed phenomena. To give you an example of the United States, since this policy of easy money started in the 90s, um, the top 1% in my country have increased their wealth share from 24% to 33%. And the bottom 90% decreased their wealth share from 40% to 30%. So you're seeing like uh, a tremendous inequality as a result of these like low interest rate regimes. Um, so, I mean, I think that y- you're going to get other negative externalities here, uh, beyond just the, you know, our, our children having to pay for it. There's weird things happening to the economy now that are, that are pretty damaging. And, you know, I think that, it's um, especially obvious now. I mean, we saw, I don't know if you saw this Oxfam report, but it said nope. the wealth of the world's 10 richest men doubled since the pandemic began, while the incomes of 99% of humanity are worse off. I mean, that is a pretty, condem- that's a damning statistic. So this system that we've set up now, which in some part is there to essentially finance these wars that otherwise the public wouldn't agree to fight, has all of these negative side effects. And- You know, when Lynn comes on your show, she talks about this idea of financial repression. Right. And the government's keeping the um, inflation rate higher uh, than than the interest rates. And she calls this financial repression. Right. Because it means that like holding cash is like it doesn't make any sense. You have to you have to go buy other stuff to go up the risk curve. So, you know, we're basically in this economy, this environment um, as a result of the government trying to keep these interest rates low where people are getting more risky and we have all kinds of collateralized debt and crazy debt instruments. And we have big companies that make more money selling their debt than products. Like, like for example, Burger King and, and um, KFC and companies like that, they make more money selling their debt than selling burgers and fries and stuff. This is all detailed in a great book called The Lords of Easy Money by Christopher Leonard that I'd highly recommend you all read. And it's, it's, it's it doesn't really talk too much about the war piece, but it talks about Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke and this idea of, like, let's keep the interest rates low to keep this economy going. And I think that we if we don't have the low interest rates, the whole thing stops working. Right. Um, And what's what's really interesting is that Obama, when he left his office and look, I'm sure most of the listeners here are, are skeptical of Obama. And I was deeply disappointed as someone who originally thought he might be positive. Um, but I've, I have a lot of criticisms of him, but he said when he was leaving office in an interview that that he was worried about a president who can carry on perpetual wars all around the world, a lot of them covert without any accountability or democratic debate. I'm worried, too. And, and that's where we are today. And I guess what I'm telling what I'm saying to you is that, like, there are structural forces which um, which are pushing us in this direction there's very little um, public knowledge about wars. The public isn't involved with paying, them, paying for them. And it doesn't really seem like there's a fix on the roadmap, like from the fiat side.
2: So, simple question, what, why have these wars? If, if they destabilize regions, they put a higher risk on the U.S. from terror. If they destabilize the U.S. economy, what is the incentive to continue these wars, why are people continuing to choose to enter into these wars?
0: Well, I mean each war has its own set of um, you know incentives I mean Vietnam was largely seen by u s policymakers as an important step to fight the spread of communism uh-huh. obviously i 've come on your show and i 've talked about Iraq before, um, but I think you know my the- my thesis is that this relates a lot to dollar hegemony and needing to protect our allies in the region and and Again, these are concerns that are not known or even talked about by, like, the average person.
2: Well, this is the you know? other question I was going to ask you, because the last time we spoke, we discussed uh, the petrodollar. Mm-hmm. And you raised an issue relating to one of the incentives for the, for the Iraq war, which isn't openly discussed. Why did they lie? Why did they want to push us into the war? And I think you told me that uh, Saddam Hussein was going to start trading oil as a petro-euro, and that was one of uh, the reasons that could have been why the U.S. went to war with Iraq again. Are you now connecting the dots from this to that?
0: Yeah, yeah, I am. So I'll try to break it down. The, the dollar is the world reserve currency, which was something that was um, originally created essentially at Bretton Woods, right, where we basically told the world listen, you're not going to use gold anymore. You're going to use dollars. and But don't worry, we'll pay you back in gold whenever you want. And then we broke that promise. We defaulted on our debt, 71. Um, and then we needed to find another way of kind of fixing the dollar to value. So we went to the Saudis and said, can you guys just price all of your oil in dollars and only accept dollars? And they said, yes. And this helped to drive a lot of interest and demand for dollars. And here's some fighter planes and some missiles. Yeah, of course. I mean, there was this whole deal where we would protect them in exchange for them doing this and then that that was kind of enough the petrodollar system was enough to push the world in a direction where the dollar became and the dollar and the treasury let's say dollar and dollar debt became like these most important instruments in in, in finance in the world and today um we've been living off this because at first we had to force other countries literally to buy our debt like in the in the 60s um johnson the Germans, the West Germans, to to buy our debt. And then, you know, we did this pact with the Saudis in the 70s. Um, And in the 80s, we forced the Japanese to buy our debt um, at the Plaza Accord. Um, And then, you know, we also, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, we're sort of pushing the Chinese to buy more of our debt. Um, There was between 2002 and 2008 a whole bunch of, like, uh, trade wars or whatever between the U.S. and China, and we were just trying to convince them to buy more and more of our debt uh, as a result of this. And that worked for a long time. Like foreigners financed a huge percentage of our wars. I think even in the first decade of Iraq and Afghanistan, they financed about 40% of our wars. They financed a lot more than that of the previous wars. But that that interest is like drying up. Um, and today, as, 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 as I think we've said here before, the US government is the majority buyer of, of, of the debt, right? Now, um, it's interesting because if you look at the idea of a military buildup, obviously, Uh, a government has to borrow to do this. So there's three big military buildups that I would point out. In the 60s, we had the military buildup for Vietnam. The 80s, we had the Reagan military buildup against the Soviets, which was triggered by their invasion of Afghanistan, right? And in the 2000s, we had the military buildup after 9-11. These all led to different financial crises. Uh, The military buildup in the 60s led to the devaluation of the dollar and and the, the pr- breaking of the gold standard. The uh, buildup in the 80s led to the savings and loan crisis and, and the huge stock market crash and recession in the end of the 80s, early 90s. And, you know, the military buildup in the 2000s led to the subprime crisis and the great financial crisis. So um, these uh, military buildups are, are not like fully, smoothly sustainable. They do result in financial crises now we haven't had a currency crisis since since the 70s um because everybody else wants treasuries still we still have that lingering desire um that the u.s treasury is still the like premium thing in the world that you would go to for safety it's like the thing that people most trust maybe they don't really trust the u.s government but they trust us more than chinese debt or (laughs) even british debt you know so for now this the system sort of still works um and we can do stuff like what we did in, in March 2020 when the, – literally, the, I mean, you think about what the financial – what the crash was in 2020. It was the financial markets, which are very smart, saying, oh, look, there's a pandemic coming that's going to, like, be very deflationary and everybody's going to stay home for a while. We're going to price that in. And the markets started to go down. I mean, it's, a, it's a, almost like a biological system. The U.S. government said, no, 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 we're going to come in and we're going to buy – Not just public debt. I told you they bought trillions of dollars of public debt to kind of keep the value of U.S. debt up, keep the borrowing costs down, things like wars, but also private debt. And this isn't that much discussed. Arthur Hayes talks about this in one of his recent posts. The U.S. essentially nationalized the private credit markets also um, by being like they they didn't have to buy that much. They bought, I think, something like 10 or 15 billion dollars of private credit. But it was enough for the market to say, oh, look, the Fed's got our back. Right. So there's a psychological component to this as well. When you're out there in the markets and you know that the Fed is going to step in and buy, whether it's public or private debt, you're going to be more willing to extend it. Right. And then that's, of course, the, their their point. But it really it, it, it causes a system which which continues to grow in that direction. I mean, we just topped 30 trillion dollars in debt um, the other day. And I think that as as long as long as the U.S. government has the global reserve currency. Unfortunately, I think you start, you see these wars continue. Um, I think though, as, as we've discussed here, that may not be forever. Uh, as Lynn has pointed out on your show before, we're at all time levels of, de- of debt to GDP, you know, that de- the debt to GDP ratio is, is past where it was in World War II. So we're the most indebted we've ever been. And there's not really a clear um, way out here. So I, I think... You know, I mean, I mean again, the, I mean, we're on life support here. The U.S. government, I thought this stat was insane. They've been buying $1 million of assets every minute since March of 2020. Every minute. $1 million of assets every minute. Now, I, you know, I'm, I'm talking about subprime mortgages. I'm talking about government debt. Um, that is is—that is keeping the value of American debt uh, higher. It's keeping the interest rates lower. And, it's—it's it's, again, it's allowing us to, you know, pay – for uh, these wars, which, again, the, the public just isn't really involved in. Um, I, I, t- I spoke to um, a former trader, a securities trader, and he told me that the bond market is a check on politicians, right? I mean, think about it. If people start to question America, America or Britain or any other country, then and they start to question the sustainability of what we're doing, then they're going to buy less of our debt. And then our interest rates are going to rise. And that's usually a corrective mechanism
2: mm-hmm.
0: that forces them to change. But we, he says, we've lost this check on politicians via the Fed action. Because our central bank is engaged in this uh, basically debt monetization, um, there, there is no like uh, check on po- political power. And this is all connected with, in my opinion, the, the modern monetary framework. And I raised this the other day on Twitter, and I, I was kind of tongue in cheek, but I said like our MMTers, neocons, and of course, they're all like, "No, we're not neocons." But I, I would actually say that all neo—maybe may, if you're an MMT or maybe you hate war, that's fine. I, I get it. So maybe, but all neocons but all are, neocons M-T- are MMTers. All neocons are They have to be. This is the only way their wars work. And when I say neocon, what I'm really talking about is people who believe that this, like these forever wars, are like an important part of, of America and like our identity. Um, and you know, people like me obviously don't think they are. And I think we can be smarter as a country. But unfortunately, we are in a financial reality today where we're still, at the, we're still at the, in the age of dollar hegemony and politicians have figured out that they don't wanna talk about taxes or war bonds. They just wanna borrow from the public for general purposes and then then decide what to go, what to go do with that money. I, I thought this was a funny thought experiment. What if what if um, all of the bonds that the U.S. government sold to pay for war stuff were labeled as such? Like, what if there were specific treasuries that were war treasuries? Would they trade at a discount? Like, my thoughts are, yeah. Like, if you have, if, think about it this way, if you have institutional investors getting pressured to buy green bonds or to, like, go away from fossil uh-huh. fuels, I mean, could you imagine the pressure on going away from financing war? But we don't have that. The, 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 it's, it's completely... Um, Blank check, like when the government raises money, you don't get to choose what they what what they're going to spend it on. So we don't live in that world. So at the end of the day, um, I agree with uh, Sarah Krebs' thesis that like maybe this is this breaks democratic peace theory. Uh, Maybe fiat money breaks democratic peace theory, and I don't know if there's a fix for that. Like I don't know how in the fiat system you go back to a world where there's restraint on war and this is what the mmters don't acknowledge is that yes um the same mechanisms are at play here for war for entitlements for all kinds of other things right but they don't talk about the war piece like and if you have governments that are just going to spend 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 guess what they're going to spend on wars and i think that's important for us to talk about so so i've heard two suggestions of of things that we that 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 could be done in the fiat system to to sort of be more responsible as a, as a global power when it comes to war and and avoid unethical fights like Iraq. Right? Well, one would be national service. That's impossible to consider today. We're not all going back to war. We're just not. Um, the other one would be taxes. And again, even the Democrat, I mean, especially the Democrats, have been averse to this. No one. No, it's a considered crazy talk to suggest a war tax. So. We're just going to keep borrowing now um, because they I, can hide it yeah, because they can hide it because it's not on your taxes. You don't see it. And a lot of the implications may be hidden to you, especially if you're um, look, most people are high. asset inflation is when it's going well. Most people enjoy it, at least like people who have a lot of assets I yeah. mean, the, who are most vocal and pull it in the political world in Washington. It's great for them. Um, Now, look, eventually you get price inflation, like eventually if if the debt to GDP ratio gets too high and you you keep financing things like war through debt um, and and the government does fiscal spending into the real economy, uh, you get what we see today, um, which is the result of not not QE per se, but but because of all this fiscal spending that the Treasury was doing. I mean, they were they were printing stimulus checks to like millions, trillions of dollars to, to Americans. Obviously, that's gonna that's gonna ha- cause an increase in in, P, in PCI. Now, your CPI. Now, now, the question is, um, can they reverse that? And we don't know what's gonna happen in the, in the next year. I mean, I'm someone who thinks that it's gonna be extremely difficult for the Fed to hike rates. Um, and again, to our conversation here, and Twitch is never mentioned. One of the reasons for that is that they 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 don't want to. They don't want to incur um, an obstacle in in national security, what they call national security. What, you know, used to be called the Department of War is now called the Department of Defense. I mean, it's kind of like this euphemism, right? Um, But it's been that's how the power that we have as citizens to check our leaders has been taken from us. A lot of it has been through this idea of like debt currency and fiat money.
1: Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler. But I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And I'm yet to see a better Or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's Level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars. It's about replacing them. So while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin. You can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co/ WBD, which is lvl.co. Forward slash WBD for info and early access. Next up it's sportsbet.io. The very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Also today, we have Compass Mining, and they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about, what is it, four months now, and I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining, and I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, Choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining, or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O.
0: So, you know, the question is, what would this look like in a Bitcoin standard, or a question? And I think it would be different, um, because in a Bitcoin standard, uh, the government cannot... Hi, cannot do the hidden uh, wars, like or what Kreps calls hide and seek wars, or these credit card wars. Um, it's not possible that they, they would have to necessarily raise the money for war through taxes or or through some sort of like consent consensual process. Can, can you
2: define Bitcoin standard in this scenario? Is it that the Bitcoin has replaced the dollar, or? Bitcoin has become the global reserve asset.
0: Yeah, when I say bi- Bitcoin standard, I'm describing a world where Bitcoin kind of takes the role gold once had as, as the reserve asset. I think that fiat currencies, at least at the beginning of the Bitcoin standard, will still exist. It's just they'll be sort of pegged, pegged to yeah. to gold in an ex- in, a, in, a, in a range. Like, it'll be sort of like the gold exchange system. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the Bretton Woods system. Hey, you guys have all those dollars, but you can redeem them for gold? Well, maybe maybe it'll be like you can redeem them for Bitcoin, you know? And that, that keeps some level of restraint. In that system, as you saw in US history, you couldn't do credit card wars for World War II. Just, it didn't work because it was, it was still backed by something. And again, I understand that like that prevented us from a lot of entitlements and education, and we can have that conversation, but we can't have that conversation without talking about the war piece, okay? So if it's a Bitcoin standard, you cannot do credit card wars. It's impossible. Um, the 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 interest rates would climb very high on our debt and it would be impossible to finance. So governments will have to, will have to fund war through taxation and and through like specific war bond programs. Which is a free market for war. Well it means that the citizens get to yeah. get to be involved and they get to they get they get to say. They get to have a say. And I'm optimistic about that. I think that's going to be one of the single greatest externalities or effects of the Bitcoin standard will be um, less unnecessary war. Again, yeah. if you have a World War II scenario, again, which was financed half by taxes and a consensual public that that says, we want to go fight the Nazis, that can be fought on a Bitcoin standard, 100%. Um, unnecessary, aggressive. Yeah, World War One, impossible. No, mm-hmm. I mean, impossible. And um, Afghanistan and Iraq, impossible. I mean, mm, because-
2: Afghanistan might have been something because of the- uh, the pa-
0: the the kind of response from the public of feeling attacked. Oh, let me let me clarify. A swift strike. Yeah. Um, a twenty um, year war, Gulf, no. Gulf War style. Colin Powell led uh, eight month intervention could have been fine. Yes, absolutely. Um, we can defend ourselves just fine on on stand. You know, on a, on a fixed monetary standard. Um, but a twenty year forever war that very few Americans even knew we were what we were doing. No, it's just not possible. Mm. They're not going to pay for it. Um, we, I mean, essentially, the Afghanistan war became an exercise in foreign aid, which Americans, you know, are, aren't very, you know, kind towards in terms of like a major priority for. For they'd rather see domestic aid, basically. Um, so again, I think you you may have a situation in a Bitcoin standard where there still are wars, uh, what we would call like maybe just wars or. Wars that matter a lot to a particular community or population or city state or whatever whatever kind of um, uh, structure is gonna do the war fighting. But, but there's gonna be a back and forth and some accountability there because you can't do a credit card war on a Bitcoin standard. So I'm very optimistic about that. I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm um, kind of hopeful about the future is because we may shift to a monetary regime where things like Iraq are, are impossible.
2: Wow. Okay. That's interesting because there are people who think that under a Bitcoin standard, there will be no
0: war. I don't think there will be no war, yeah. but, but I think forever wars are really difficult. Um, I know, there's, look, there's a guy, um, Matthew Pines, he's, he's sharp, and he's been writing about this. And uh, in, in, you have to acknowledge, of course, that some war fighting is deflationary. It like gets mm-hmm. cheaper, drones, things like that, you know. But at the end of the day, it's still a cost. And in a Bitcoin standard, there's no like sort of free lunch, like there's no free lunch ever, but there's no free lunch that you can kind of quietly impose on the population. They have to be involved in the conversation or else you're not going to have the money to do it. Um, So I think that this idea of like governments kind of, again, essentially borrowing from the future and, and causing, you know, currency devaluation and asset inflation today To fight wars and and to to occupy other lands is just is just not a is not feasible um but again like short clear narrow commitments 100 percent. i mean one of the there was a great quote um in krepp's book from um uh, a politician um who talked about how he he lived through world war ii and said it was such a clear narrow war with an obvious mission we were going to defeat hitler and then we were going to come back home. And then he says, you can't, you cannot say what the mission is in Afghanistan or Iraq. There is no mission. And, and that's concerning. I mean, what was the mission was essentially to have a stable government ally. Like it? Well, there was no like clear overriding thing. And I guess what I'm saying is, at least in my country, if you look in history, we showed an appetite for clear, narrow wars that had an objective that seemed reasonable and, and Americans were willing to sacrifice for that. Um, we do not show an appetite for uh, unnecessary, unethical wars. <laughs> and therefore, that's why governments have resorted to borrowing to pay for them. And I think a Bitcoin standard fixes that.
2: Yeah. Um, a, a lot of this is concerning because of the size of the numbers that we're dealing yeah. with here. That. One third of did you tax receipts well, a three percent interest rate yeah, would let, be used to finance. Well, interest. let me
0: just give you so today the, in 2022, the U.S. government will use my government as a proxy for anyone listening. Your government is, has a similar dynamic, probably. Six trillion dollars is what we're going to spend this year on on everything on everything. Okay, six trillion on everything. Now, um, only about four. Trillion of that is coming in through taxes and through other revenue sources. So at least two trillion of it, let's say, is um, is new debt that we're adding to this debt pile that keeps growing, that's now at 30 trillion.
2: But of that six trillion, one trillion is interest.
0: So, no, 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 the, the trillion of interest has been paid um, since 2002 to today. Right, okay, you of that six thing. trillion, it's about 300 billion is our interest on debt, okay? 300 billion of the six trillion. And a lot of that's military related, right? $750 billion for military spending. It's the single largest non-discretionary item on the menu out of that $6 trillion is military, plus the interest. So you're talking close to a trillion dollars out of $6 trillion for 2022 fiscal year that's military related. Um, and that's not. Quite a bit of that is, again, being paid for by borrowing and by pushing it off to the future. So it's it's a significant percentage of our costs. It's more than what our allies pay. Like if you look at like other NATO countries, they spend less on military. I mean, partly because we're there to be the like protector of last resort. Dude. So is,
2: well, was this what Trump was complaining about trying to encourage yeah, people to increase their spend? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it is. And, you know, a lot of what he said on these on these um, matters had like a very big grain of truth to it, like yeah. 100%. Um, we, we do spend more. Um, but he was also tapping into concerns in the public about, like, should we really be spending all this money on all this stuff? And look, at the end of the day, he was happy to line the pockets of the military contractors. But um, the, there is a deep-seated question, I think, among a lot of Americans today about about our interventions abroad. Like, anyone who looks into it close closely enough is just asking big questions. I mean, the fact that the biggest war of the last 40 years, we don't even know why we went and fought it. should ca- Iraq should should cause concern among Americans. And again, I believe that war was highly unethical and I believe it was only able to be fought the way it was fought and for the duration that it was fought by this sort of like easy monetary regime borrowing, you know, philosophy that didn't involve the public at all from a financial point of view. We were happy to complain about the Iraq war in the newspapers, and we were happy to protest. But at the end of the day, we didn't have to pay for it.
2: I'm not sure everyone in the newspapers was complaining. No, no, no.
0: To be clear, I understand that in February of 2003, the majority of Americans supported the war. They were brainwashed, right, of course, by, oh, the yellow cake, and, oh, you know, so you know, Al-Qaeda used Iraq as a base, and they have nukes, and all this stuff and we found out. Was, journalists. And journalists. Totally, totally. But but by 2005, 6, 7, the war became unpopular. Okay, mm-hmm. so like, it became pretty—people got tired of it. The problem is, because they weren't paying for it, there was not a whole lot they could do, okay? Uh-huh. So a democracy, just to sort of conclude that idea, a healthy democracy needs some way for the, gov- for the people— to hold their government accountable with war, and the point of Kreps's book is that this is broken now because of fiat. I mean, essentially because of the fiat currency system. Um, and again, I don't, I don't know if there's a way out, but I do think the Bitcoin model, which again, it's not going to be, it's not going to be something the U.S. government goes out and says, "Hey, look, we'd love to be less war fighting. Let's use Bitcoin." No, that's not. Of course, yeah. <laughs> it would be like a multi-decade shift, but it, it could happen. And the results could be really promising. And and I just think that, that these credit card wars are so terrible for for our society at large.
2: Well, you and I are similar in that we're both uh, proponents of democracy. Uh, would rather see it strengthened than Yeah, this down. is how
0: we fix democracy. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like a lot of people were like, oh, Bitcoin's anti-democratic. And we can have those debates all day long, but this would help address a key flaw in democracy. A key flaw in democracy is the fact that um, the... Social contract between the uh, citizens and the people they they represent that they elect to represent them is broken by the ability to finance wars through borrowing, and I think Kreps's book is is just makes this case very convincingly, and that can be fixed by adding back some sort of restraint to the monetary system.
2: And it's not about a separation of money and state; it's about having a reserve asset that nobody that is decentralized and therefore can't be switched on and off as
0: the government chooses. No, it's both, though. I mean, it's about having a decentralized reserve asset for everyone in the world. But it's also the fact that that's only achievable by separating money from state.
2: Can I ask a question on that? Mm
0: -hmm. Um, So I totally agree that, obviously, the citizen should have control over where their money's spent and on which war. Mm -hmm. But if it was in a Bitcoin standard and someone like China chose to continually debase their currency yep. at the expense of their people, could they not outspend someone like the U.S. in a war? Yeah, so um, great question. So the, the, an important point to consider is that gold failed as a check on government power. Uh, governments went off the gold standard to fight World War I, and then they never really went back, right, in, in a sense. And that was possible because gold was uh, centralized. Yep in the hands of custodians. Um, and that makes it possible for governments to kind of go off the gold standard and then just like debase their currency to pay for war. This is what Germany did. This is what your country did. Britain did this, et um, etc. et cetera. Et cetera. Uh, I mean, you could argue the Americans did it in Vietnam, right? We ended up basically saying, just kidding, we're not we're not paying you back any more, uh, any more gold where we're running out. And that is something, again, that's possible because gold is centralized and in the hands of custodians. Bitcoin is in the hands of its users. So like governments at the moment don't control all the Bitcoin, people do. So if a government like China or America or anyone else decided to start debasing its currency, the citizens would just have a check on that. Like in the same way that a bond market is a check on a government power, Bitcoin is a check on what governments do because citizens can just save their Bitcoin. And, And if the government starts debasing the currency, the Bitcoin gets more valuable. And it it just it just defends them. Um, Does it stop a government from completely and thoroughly destroying their fiat currency? I'm not sure. It seems like some governments are happy to do so, but at least it gives citizens a defense mechanism. I mean, today you'd be powerless. I mean, without Bitcoin in this world of credit card wars, there's literally nothing we can do to stop them. And what I mean, what can you do? We've tried protesting. We've tried writing op-eds in the newspaper. We've tried electing different kinds of politicians. We haven't been able to stop the forever wars. That's why they're called forever wars. I mean, the uh, they just kind of continue in different ways. And, you know, Obama was famous for saying he, he didn't come into office looking for dragons to slay. But by the end of his office, he was fighting more wars than when he joined us, you know, when he get, went into office. And he started getting bogged down in, in fighting ISIS and stuff like that. Um, again, very little congressional oversight over any of this stuff and certainly very little public knowledge. So... I think that in a Bitcoin standard, you just have less of an, less of an incentive to do these kind of broad based searching kind of occupation type things. And if the government does choose to debase the currency, citizens have a, a, a protection. Citizens have protection.
2: Hmm. It feels like this is uh, another important like string to the bow, the ammo of why we should care about Bitcoin and why we should completely and utterly ignore shitcoins, why Bitcoin is this unique property in this crypto ecosystem.
0: Yeah, and I, well, before, before we get I'm, to- just,
2: I'm just not sure how many people care.
0: No, but before we get to that, I think it's important to point out just generally speaking that this goes for all government expenditures, right? So most of what the government spends its money on today in my country is on entitlements, right? So under a Bitcoin standard, that would also be restrained but I think that people care more about entitlements than wars. Mm-hmm. So I think that what you're going to see, if you look at public polling, at least, is in a Bitcoin standard, there'd be constraint, certainly. But with the money that is spent, it would be more directed towards domestic infrastructure, um, education, healthcare, care, et cetera. And maybe once in a while, a very important war. But not these, again, not these like decades long, just like loose um, you know, just amorphous wars that, that people don't know about. Like that would just be like, that would be the first thing off the chopping block, right? They just enrich Uh military contractors. They don't really help the American people. That would just be like one of the first things off the chopping block. As far as, you know, look, as far as the other cryptocurrencies, um, I mean, look, all money is political except for Bitcoin. I mean, you have fiat currencies, which of course, are manipulated by their very nature, by the governments that issue them. You have the m- most money in the world is, is our banking instruments, which, are, con- which, are, which can be just controlled by the state, whether it's by the state asking, please freeze that bank account, or by the state changing interest rates to manipulate the amount of money in the system. Um, you have uh, FinTech credits, like most of the money we use on a daily basis today is like Apple Pay or we- Alipay or whatever it is, wherever you are, that's extremely easily censorable and freezable, as we saw the other day with GoFundMe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the other cryptocurrencies, all of whom are controlled by some group of people who are going to change the monetary rule set at some point. Um, whether that's like an ongoing debate, like it is in Ethereum, where like they aren't sure how much money's going to be printed because they haven't made up their mind yet, um, or whether it's something that's baked into the baked into it, like in whatever, Dogecoin is going to keep printing forever. Like the, the point is that Bitcoin stands alone in, in the world. Even, and even gold is controlled again by, I mean, gold was completely demonetized by the US government in the last hundred years. Bitcoin stands alone in the world as the only currency that's non-political. And it, I, I, that's why I think it has the only, it's the only one that has a shot to be this like neutral reserve asset that, that would be kind of globally restraining. Equally among all players, um, and look, it, it has a really great chance of doing that. I think right now, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on on that eventually happening.
2: The the U.S. defense budget is it always appears to me the one budget that never seems to get cut. Well, Seven hundred fifty billion, did you say? Yeah. Um, but there obviously are various cuts to other services, and whether it's education, health, welfare, yes. Well,
0: I mean, they cut taxes. So, I mean, the the, the point is that um, it's a defense budget. Yeah, it's not supposed to be an occupy a foreign land and and steal its resources budget. That would be a different budget, <laughs> but it's all looped lumped under defense. Um, again, I think in a system where citizens have more control, they would be more interested in that seven hundred fifty billion dollars. Right now, like, what am I going to do? I, nothing. So. But in a system where, like, the government needs my Bitcoin at some level, uh, and the commercial sector needs my Bitcoin to to expand and grow, there has to be more of a two-way street. There has to be a dialogue here, and I suspect that that 750 billion would be a lot closer to whatever three or 400 billion if 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 it was under a Bitcoin standard, because we're we're just simply not going to pay for these like occupations of these foreign lands that are never going to matter to us and whose outcomes are not even, you know, positive. I, I, I thought that this was an amazing thing that the MMT kind of advocate Kelton said at the end of her book. And this is this is something she concludes with. And it it, it made me kind of joke uh, about the neocon MMT thing, because it, it sounds like somebody who's so sure of America being good all the time. And look, I'm I'm very I love my country, but I think we're not good all the time. And I think we're very flawed and we have to be humble about that. But what I'm about to read to you is someone who doesn't really, it doesn't really sound like she thinks that we've done bad stuff. And that's why I'm so concerned about her pushing this idea of unrestrained spending. What matters is not the size of the so-called debt or who holds it, but whether we can look back with pride, knowing that our stockpile of treasuries exists because of the many mostly positive interventions that were taken on behalf of our democracy. I mean, to me, that's just like so rich, you know? especially in the age of two wars which most Americans at the end of the day didn't pay for and weren't that interested in Iraq and Afghanistan.
2: Well, they, they will pay for it, or their children will pay for it, or they'll pay for it out of their pensions. Correct, Correct. but they weren't
0: knowingly paying for it. They yeah. weren't like, involved in that at, at the outset. And, th- I mean, one thing that should be said is that borrowing for war is much more expensive than just paying for it up front. I mean, the interest rate alone that I was describing to you is insane. I mean, had we just paid for the war up front through, again, through taxation or whatever, we wouldn't have the trillion dollars on interest payments or the $6 trillion on interest payments by 2050. And also the fiscal control of that budget. Y- well, yeah. I mean, look, you also wouldn't – again, what I'm pointing out is that the, the, there's, there's some sort of correlation here between the war on terror and these expansionary wars and this loose monetary policy and these low interest rates – it, it they're connected, and and I I I guess again my thesis is like you can't have one without. I mean, this war on terror wouldn't really be possible in a high interest rate environment. So gov- there needs to be government intervention in the in the bond markets to fight war, just like there needed to be in World War One for the British government uh, to finance its war. It tried to get the public to pay for it, and the public said no. <laughs> basically, we're not buying your war bonds. So the government did it anyway, right? And that that is just such a it's a great little and, and tragic little example of like where we are today. The government probably, yeah, would love the people to pay for the Iraq war, but they were like, there's no way that's going to happen. Um, maybe they're polling in favor of us going. But if you look at the uh, there actually has been extensive polling on taxes for wars. Yeah. Nobody wants to pay for them. The the difference between is it a good idea for us to invade and was that what, what did you support it is a very different poll set in then Do I mean, you want to lose 10 of your yeah, pension? Yeah. Then, then are you willing to pay for it? Very different. Very different. Whether you talk about India's wars in the in the late 90s with Pakistan, or even in Israel, Israel hasn't issued um, uh, war bonds since since the 80s. So even they've been borrowing heavily. Um, so again, any any of these like kind of democratic structure countries um, are, in my opinion, breaking because of this. I mean, even these even Denmark, even these other countries. They're, they're, they're doing things that are undemocratic um, because they're able to manipulate the fiat system. And again, I, I don't think that that's fixable because the fixes would be a, dra- a full draft national service or taxes. And people aren't willing to, to sacrifice their blood and treasure for these wars. And if that's the case, we shouldn't be fighting them.
2: When I interviewed Vijay Boyapati uh, last week, he says, under a Bitcoin standard, you mostly like most likely see the breakdown of democracy as well into smaller geographical units potentially balkanizing
0: uh, the u s or even heading towards city states yeah I mean it's possible i but i again I think that at the end of the day you have this um uh, thing that 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 a that Bitcoin standard would would instill back again um, in that it would make a democracy quite capable of this idea of like you have Republican caution or tyrannical caprice. I mean, the whole the whole again, the whole concept of democratic peace theory, the whole one of the whole reasons I believe in democracy is better than a king or a dictator or a city state ruler Mm -hmm. is that there is this accountability um, that if we don't like what you do, we're going to replace you with somebody else. And that, that tends to be quite helpful. That has been undermined by the fiat currency system. Yeah. It might work better in a Bitcoin system. It might. Um, so this all remains to be seen. But, you know, will nation states um, kind of shrink in size or at least become more, more like a United States type model? Um, very possibly. Very possibly. But, I mean, look, I think politicians who are closer to you and who care more about you, are better anyway. So maybe you don't see the UK collapse, but maybe you see the powers just kind of um, get, getting a lot closer to, to, to the communities themselves. You know, maybe like Bedford doesn't rely on London anymore for fiscal stuff. Maybe it's much more local. You know, like maybe you're still England or the UK, but maybe, maybe you all have a lot more say over, over what happens.
2: But to Danny's point, mm-hmm. does that... Do countries under a Bitcoin standard or the first movers under a Bitcoin Uh standard become vulnerable to those that aren't?
0: Um, I think it's the opposite. Uh, And this is something Fidelity pointed out kind of strikingly in a recent uh, uh, study is that the countries that adopt Bitcoin first, I mean, they're not like it's the El Salvador thing is very unlikely. You're probably not going to see countries do legal tender. Um, I think that eventually comes But I think, again, what you see is maybe like we're going to buy 5% for our treasury or whatever, you know, for rather for put on as an asset in our central bank balance sheet. And that is going to be a huge advantage for those countries, I think. Again, if we go to a look, if we go to a um, a Bitcoin exchange standard, like the gold exchange standard, like the Bretton Woods system Mm -hmm. for Bitcoin, then your ability to have a strong fiat currency will be. Completely reliant on how much Bitcoin you have as a country, basically. So I think countries that get involved earlier would stand to have stronger fiat currencies. I mean, that's why I think the U.S. government should should I, I, the the the, the long term impact it might have on our on our inability to fight these unethical wars is sort of a secondary consideration for me. I, I think that the U.S. government should adopt Bitcoin. Now, because it'll advantage Americans in the future and it'll make our country stronger and it'll make our currency stronger, uh, at least in the near future. Eventually, I don't think we have fiat currencies, but I think there's a long transitionary period here where you have dollars or euros or whatever they are. And, and that we, we kind of enter into this exchange system where they're pegged in some way. And I w- if you, you care about your country, you're not going to want your country to be late in that. Because then you're going to have a pretty weak fiat currency. So, I mean, mm. that's, that's the way I'm thinking about it. Although, who knows? It's a it's brave new world out there. Uh, the crazy part is we get to watch it all happen, which is, which is something that people in history books in the future, if we still have them, will say, man, it must have been crazy to be around then.
2: They'll be saying if you read Alex
0: Gladstone's <laughs> series. Did you hear his Bitcoin? interview on Peter McCormick's show? No,
2: they'll be <laughs> talking about, have you read his trilogy of books?
0: Yeah. Well, look, I, um, I look, I think exploring this idea of the price of war has been so illuminating for me because I just didn't know about it. I just didn't, I didn't know about the history of how we fought wars in the past and how it's actually tied to, to democracy. And I think it's a fascinating topic that people Mm -hmm. should, should, should become educated about. Um, and then, and then maybe you start thinking differently about, um, government intervention in the bond markets, uh, and I'd like to see more dialogue about it, basically. Like, I'd like to see war more discussed and not less discussed in finance and economics more broadly. I mean, there's a big book called uh, Stigum's Money Markets that's kind of used as, like, the Bible for anyone trading in the money markets today. And, and the, it doesn't mention war at all, not a single time. I'd like to see you debate Stephanie Carlton, but with her unaware that this is— I'm actually really interested in—because she worked for Bernie, who was against wars— so how does she square this? How does she write a book that doesn't mention Iraq or Afghanistan at all? And at the end of the book, basically says she's proud of the wars we fought by through debt. Maybe because she's, she's full of shit. Maybe, but like I actually would like, like to see her defend that point. So well, so yeah, so would I. I would like. That's why
2: I think it'd be an interesting debate. The, the discussion around MMT and its implications, and then you can just slip this one in and ask her to defend this. Yeah,
0: and then people say, no, 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 MMT is just a framework for thinking about domestic financing. It's like, no, no, no. But what about if your country's largest single domestic financing expenditure is wars abroad? Like, you can't separate the two. So let's just talk more about it. Um, We've entered into a dark age that was predicted by Tocqueville, by Adam Smith. Um, I mean, you know, Adam Smith said, I have a quote here from him that I I thought was powerful. He says, the people feeling during the continuance of the war, the complete burden of it would soon grow weary of it. And the government, in order to humor them, would not would would not be under the necessity of carrying it on longer than it was necessary to do so. So he was able to observe that hundreds of years ago that, like, the people play this role. We play an important role in preventing our government from doing stupid wars, um, that role has been taken from us uh, through this fiat currency system, this debt-based system, and again, Kant spoke about this. Adam Smith, um, uh, Mill, uh, Tocqueville, so many like great thinkers. You know, in in you know, in the Enlightenment and afterwards, they all saw this. They saw the writing on the wall that this would be a threat for democracies, and lo and behold, it's it's happened, and it's really depressing that war is just such a small part of our public discourse. Like there was some, um, I think there was some Pew polling that was done uh, that about 10 years ago in the kind of the peak of the forever wars that suggested that um, when Americans answered these questions, they basically said that wars never came up in their conversations at home with family or friends. Um, And that generally speaking, that they don't really impact our lives, that's dangerous. if we're gonna be in these wars, it should be part of our conversations and it should be part of our lives. And you know, if we're not willing to have a national service, then we should at least be willing to pay for them. And if we're not, that means the government shouldn't wage them. And this is pretty clear to me. MMT um, makes it impossible for us to have accountability over our government in war. Um, now it also like makes it easier for the government to do entitlement spending. I understand that we can have that dialogue, but it also removes this ability for us to uh, have that constraint. If the government can just literally create the money to pay for the tank without asking us, then that's a problem in my book. But I, I understand there's different opinions here. <laughs> there's counter arguments? No, again, it's like the counter argument is that uh, we we would have less entitlement spending, right? We'd have less public health care and then we'd have less public infrastructure works and less like progressive stuff. But my, my counter to that is like, really? Like, yes, we'd probably have like to, in total less, yes, of course, but not in proportion to the forever wars. Like those would be the, first. if we all got in a room like 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans in America and said, look, uh, we got to cut like X, and it's not politicians who are bought by lobbyists, but actual citizens. I'm pretty sure we would, we would opt to not pay for the invasions and occupations of these foreign lands. That would be, like, one of the top things. Um, certainly, you know, before, like, you know, infrastructure spending or healthcare or or, you know, uh, education, et cetera, et cetera. So let's keep talking about wars. Let's keep them in our dialogue. Um, I think it's, it's very, very important.
2: When is this work going to be finished?
0: Um, hopefully by the end of the month, I'll have, I'll have an essay out exploring this and, uh, going very deep into a lot of these different areas and, um, just, yeah, again, getting people to think about the, the, the current monetary system and, and, uh, as you would say the monetary system and, <laughs> and, and the relationship to, uh, to, to the era we've lived in. I mean, this shaped my life, right? I'm like, uh, I'm 36. I was, uh, Totally shaped by 9-11 and by the Iraq war. And it's interesting to me that someone who could be shaped by it and go to school for international relations and have a career in human rights, you know, and be pretty inquisitive, like be totally ignorant about how these wars were paid for. Like I consider myself probably more educated than than most people about this topic. I mean, I went to school for four years studying why did we invade Iraq and all that stuff. And I have a degree in international relations and I never even thought about it until I started getting into, uh, like, looking at things from a monetary point of view. So um, uh, I'm grateful that Bitcoin has helped me ask these questions.
2: Okay, so this article out at the end of the month, a book coming out maybe April.
0: Yeah, definitely the book, Check Your Financial Privilege. That'll be a lot of fun.
2: And then what next?
0: Well, what next is is the Oslo Freedom Forum in May. Yes, of course. I'm very excited about that. That's going to be amazing. I've just accepted. More more details on that soon. But we're going to have a lot of fun there. And no, just a continuing worldwide quest to um, talk about Bitcoin and money and educate people about it so that they can use it if they need it.
2: Well continue your amazing work. I always feel privileged just to sit here and listen to you. I've learned so much from you over the years.
0: Politicians have used uh, this fiat system to shield citizens from knowing about what they're doing, especially with war. Bitcoin is our shield to prevent that from happening. And it's pretty awesome that your job is to go around and talk to people about Bitcoin. It's great.
2: It's amazing. But look, your work is incredible. I'm going to embarrass you or maybe Jeremy a little bit. Our camera guy, Jeremy, said... Alex Gladstein is the person I listen to most outside of... Was it my podcast or all all, podcasts? Yeah, all podcasts. You're the guy he listens to most. You got a fan here.
0: Well, I'm deeply grateful for that, and I promise to keep hustling.
2: Yeah, keep doing it, man. Uh, Amazing work, and we're going to go out and have some dinner tomorrow. Yeah, we are. Looking forward to it. All right, Alex, keep doing your good work. Uh, We'll put everything in the show notes. Uh, It's at Gladstein on Twitter. Uh, Alex works for the HRF. Look at the amazing work they do there as well. Not only um, in the traditional traditional work in uh, supporting human rights, but also in supporting the Bitcoin ecosystem. Take care, man.
0: Take care.
1: All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at did dot com.